You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Dog. Hello. Hello. Hey, how's this sounding? Sounds good. It sounds really classy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some classical music in the background. Yeah, I know. That's um, the, the part that sounds classy. I mean, your voice oh. sounds classy too, obviously. But I mean, the the, the music <laughs> sounds classy. Well, I, there's a thunderstorm going on here, so we'll probably get some of that in here too. Do you remember the the first episode we did? How there was that weird bird noise going on the whole time in the background. With the Todd Kind of. I mean, kind of. I think we've had air conditioning units and, and there was oh, do you things remember in the background. We did the interview with the guy and there was like a weird mouse noise and he just we said, Could you make that stop? He's like, Yes, and then like instantly there were no more mouse noises, but we didn't understand how that happened. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember things like that. <laughs> anyway, it's it's funny. A hundred episodes, man. It just flew by. Well, congratulations to you and congratulations to us. Yeah, exactly to us. To us. Because Cheers. I remember, are we recording now, presumably? Sure. Cool. It looks I like it. <laughs> when I was first invited to be on the show, and I remember discussing this with a friend whose name I will not mention, he said, why would you have a show about cryptids and monsters? That's There are really only two monsters. There's Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster, and that'll just be two episodes, and that's it. So I'd like to think we really proved him wrong with 100 episodes and dozens of different cryptids and creatures. Oh, I agree. I totally agree. In fact, even uh, from the contributions of uh, people sending in their favorite monster, I had to go look a few of them up, which was great. I love that. Yeah, we're still learning about new creatures from all around the world. And I'm still getting emails from requests from people saying, can you talk about this monster? Can you talk about this creature? Yes, I like that. It's, it's, and it, I've, I've really enjoyed the way we've been able to tie in Lots of interesting science topics. It does tend to skew towards biology. Um, and I don't know if maybe mm-hmm. uh, after uh, a while, maybe we can figure out some way to bring in physics or <laughs> some great math monsters. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure they exist out there somewhere. Yeah, but- it, we do, There is a cool one we haven't talked about. Uh, 
which is uh, lots of cool ones we haven't. Well, that's about. true. They're, they're, I was thinking specifically about the one that comes out of uh, artificial intelligence. Um, I, we, I don't want to get any spoilers going there, but we'll we, we'll work on that. <laughs> Plenty more shows to come. Exactly. So I guess I might as well mention this now that I am planning to take a extended break here. Uh, you are. Yeah, so you episode are. 100. So I'm going to be working on a book, and it's not about Exciting. monsters. But <laughs> it, How could it not be? How disappointing. I know. Well, it, I, I think it will tie in tangentially to uh, ancient aliens. Um, ah. So well, that, it, it's going to be about technology and how inventions are created. So it's, it's exciting. I, I am very happy about this book. So uh, that's really great. And um, how long do you think it will take you to uh, finish? Well, uh, I'm I'm running about uh, 45 years longer than I had hoped it would. <laughs> well, I, I know what that's like. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't want to say for sure. Uh, I'll be back at any specific time. I would like to believe that I'll be done in far less than a year, um, but, right? But I don't know. I don't know. I've I don't got know to squeeze if the it listeners in. Can take a hiatus of a year, even. <laughs> well, uh, there's always mysterious universe out there to download. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I, I honestly, I, I really want to put a really good effort into this because it's something I. It's a topic I really love. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. So, but a few months at least. I, I don't know. I, I wish, yeah. like, I wish I could have it done by Christmas. But you know, it, it's it's how long it takes. I don't know how long it's going to take. I'm writing a novel. I think I've told you about that before. Yeah, um, was one that skeptics should enjoy, and um, so I'm hoping to get that done by Christmas if that's possible. But uh, the the baby has um, really taken up a great deal of my time in the past two months. Yes, they do that. They uh, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Especially my evenings and nights yeah. when I'm trying to sleep and mornings and afternoons <laughs> exactly <laughs> they're fun though they, they they are fun so uh i don't want to turn oh, yeah. this into a baby show but uh how are things going oh things are going really well he's a beautiful little boy and every day he's growing bigger and i can see more cognition more intelligence and um i just can't wait until he can become a fan of the show himself oh that'd be cool oh we get the coolest little entry uh into uh the favorite monsters uh, a mom sent in herself and then all her kids doing their oh. favorite monsters it's very adorable i like it oh no i can't wait to hear all of the responses from oh i think episodes. they're really fun i really like them so it was a lot of work to edit those it, it took me way longer than i thought it would um, and did you include all of the responses or did i included you have to all of the responses that i could find wow uh, so i what i did was i asked people to send in the subject line of episode 100 a few people missed that and uh, so I've, I've tried to find all the ones that had sound attachments in my inbox, but <laughs> I believe in the end we had more than 75 contributions. So that's a, oh, that's a pretty fantastic. good response. So, uh, I'm very happy, but it was right, interesting. This will be a fun so, episode. Oh, I think so. And there's so many different file types. Uh, and, and then within yeah, those file types, different bit rates. So it was, it was a lot of work to get them all oh, for, for that. It'll, it'll be worth it. Yeah. I think it turned out well, but like if I had said, Please send your sound file in the following format with the following file extension using this this sample. I don't think anybody would have bothered with it. So yeah, you might have had so, seven responses. So it was better that I spent that time and everybody else just did their best job and got their recording submitted. So oh, that's so great! I can't wait to hear them all. So I don't want to dwell on the fact that I'm going on a break, but I do want to talk about uh, at least mention 
we 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 haven't found our snake expert yet. We haven't had a Kraken episode yet. Um, mm-hmm. There's like so many monsters that I really want to make sure we cover. Giant snakes is one I really wanted to get. Before we even started the show, I wanted the giant snakes episode. That's right, and uh, it's been pretty elusive, but I'm sure one day we'll track someone down, and I think it'd be fun to to uh, talk more about a lot of international folklore and um, the stories from, from other cultures and other countries, and you there's know, so many more monsters to, to tackle. Absolutely, and physics. I know how we could do physics. We could talk to some physicists about all of the ghost hunting equipment that's out there and all the sort of... Uh, That's a great idea. I mean, you rarely hear from them about that topic, and they're the people who would know how to use these instruments and and you know what they can and can't be used for. Yeah. So I I think in the meantime, if if listeners want to hang out on the Facebook page and make suggestions, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, and write to us. I always love absolutely receiving emails right. absolutely. From yeah, uh, and it's Karen at monstertalk dot org and Blake at monstertalk dot org. Uh, we could be reached there. So. I'm excited. I'd like to do another hundred episodes, uh, but I got to uh, take I, a break. <laughs> <laughs> that then that's fair enough too. You know, er, everything you're doing is in the name of skepticism. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, have you got any thoughts about? Uh, has anything changed in the way you think about monsters since you've been doing this show? Oh, I've always had a fascination with them, but I think that just over the course of the show, um, just one thing that I've thought of a lot is the fact that these cryptids might not be real, hmm. uh, but we shouldn't allow our skepticism to ruin our fun at all. I think we can still appreciate the legends and the folklore and the pop culture, uh, even if we, we don't believe in these creatures. And so I think that's something that's become very evident to me. I know. And it, it is, uh, I think one of the things, again, from all these contributions, it's, it's obvious that our listeners, like us, really love monsters. And whether they're real or not, it's it's just a fun, fun thing to be passionate about. Uh, oh, so absolutely, and something that goes back to our childhoods, and um, you know, just at a time where we might have believed in these things, it really touches something very raw. I think. Oh yeah, I, and I love it with my kids. They're asking me, "Is this monster real? Is that monster real?" And and, I'm, and I don't like to just say yes or no. I like to say, "Well, how could we find out?" You know, and that's that's the real fun. I think is sort of hunting down the mystery and understanding. Not just reassuring yourself that something's not real because it's scary or wishing something is real because you love it, you know, just but trying to figure out how to understand the world a little bit better in a more scientific way. Oh, absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's that's half the uh, the battle to, to know where to look if you're trying to find out about something, to do the research and um, to to learn about it as you go along. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us today, Karen. So, Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. Thank you for being uh, a co-host with me all of these years and for coming up with the idea of this show. Monster Talk. Brian Sykes is an author and an emeritus professor of human genetics at Wolfson College at the University of Oxford. He's well known for his research in DNA and its relationship to human origins. His books include The Seven Daughters of Eve, Adam's Curse, Blood of the Isles, DNA USA, A Genetic Portrait of America, and his newest book is a product of his landmark DNA study of the best available physical evidence for America's favorite mystery primate, Bigfoot. His research was the basis for a popular television documentary, Bigfoot Files, and also Bigfoot Revealed, and his newest book is The Nature of the Beast. Welcome to Monster Talk, Dr. Sykes. Well, thank you, Blake. How did you come to specialize in uh, DNA and human genetic studies? 
Well, funnily enough, I've, uh, I've been interested in genetics for a very long time, it, it, ever since I was at school, oddly, oddly enough, and um, I've just always wanted to be a professional geneticist, and that's what I ended up being, so it couldn't be better, really. So how has um, the field of genetic studies changed during your career? Because I imagine there's been quite a lot of changes. Well, I've been extremely fortunate because uh, what's happened when I've been active professionally is the whole thing has changed because of the way in which we can understand DNA and uh, manipulate it. And uh, it's just changed beyond all recognition. So things that would have taken... Uh, 20 years to do uh, a while back you can now do in, in a couple of days so so many things including the uh, research that I've done for those books that you mentioned would not have been possible un- until uh, 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 roughly the time I was getting started so I've been really fortunate these days it's all a bit too complicated for me genetics authors have something sometimes 200 Sorry, papers have sometimes 200 authors, and it's become very much uh, a computer, a computational exercise with masses of data and uh, rather lost a bit of its magic in my <laughs> I know what you mean. It, my background uh, when I'm not doing podcasting is IT, and uh, I've, I've had some really interesting conversations uh, with people about the uh, sort of programmatical approaches to doing DNA analysis. It, yeah. it poses some very interesting computational uh, challenges. It certainly does, and and people that do it are find that f- fascinating. I'm I'm more of a field worker myself. I and and I have <laughs> recurrent arguments with the uh, the computational people, and that they never really seem to get out and get their hands dirty, like. For example, collecting DNA samples themselves. What do you see as the differences between DNA that you gather yourself and DNA that's provided in uh, just a lab assignment sort of way? Well, you lose the connection with reality, I think. If you're dealing with human um, genetics, you really want to at least uh, know something about the people that you're taking samples from especially in the field of evolution and uh, human origins and so forth, not just chewing through the numbers. So quite a lot of my computational colleagues have never actually seen or met any of the people that, whose DNA they're analysing. Um, I, I said I talk uh, a, a couple of years back, a very, very good um, computational t- statistician had been analysing the DNA of a group of chimpanzees interesting work and very well done. This colony of chimpanzees was in Holland and he'd been working on them for something like 10 or 15 years. And I asked him, have you been over to see them? And he hadn't. I was amazed. So it's, although you could say, well, it's not strictly necessary to do that, I think you get disconnected at your peril from what you're actually uh, the subjects of your research. And uh, again, it's a it's a, re- a recurrent um, conversation I have with my colleagues there. So I imagine, uh, not being an expert, that that there's um, a statistical analysis is a big part of how this works because I, I don't think, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think we're at the point where someone can look at a DNA sample and then tell specifically what the sort of morphological 
behavior, the makeup of, of, of whatever they're looking at is. They would only know statistically it's likely to be something. Is that is that accurate? I guess that's true. I, I mean, computationally, uh, the the way that the analyses are done, particularly for human origins, you know, when people moved about the world and so forth, are done, uh, are really designed to work with groups of people. So by that, I mean, you have groups that are really not terribly natural uh, groups, like what did the Vikings do or what did people from Estonia do and all this sort of thing. Well, and if they're treated as a group, is it, you, you've lose something because of course the human history is full of uh, mixing and moving around and uh, so I've always been a great uh, believer that the particularly human evolution that the it's the individual that counts rather than as is necessary in some forms of computation of defining populations as such and then treating them as a single unit which is always going to lead to trouble at the boundaries so how has your work in DNA research uh, impacted your thoughts about uh, the idea of race? Hmm. Well, this came out a lot in DNA USA. I was, um, it's a very thorny question, of course, and it's often been bit, uh, abused by geneticists back in the 20s and 30s and days of eugenics and so on and so forth. So I was very interested in that question for DNA USA when I decided to look at the genetic history of uh, African Americans and European Americans and also Native Americans. Um, and, and I was, could look at someone's DNA using a relatively new technique, see which parts of their DNA, which genes, which bits of which chromosomes, had their origins in either of those continents, Africa, Europe, or indeed Native America. And um, very interesting that many of the African Americans, and all the African Americans that I, that I uh, analyzed, these are all volunteers, of course, and I met them all, um, were had, had European DNA somewhere in their genome, without exception. I mean, sometimes African Americans had more European DNA than they did African DNA, even though they felt themselves to be African Americans. So that was quite interesting. But I also found that uh, that in many white Americans, particularly from the South. All of those had some uh, African DNA in their genomes, even though in certain cases they were absolutely sure they didn't, but they did. So it's a it's a mixture. And I mean, racial definitions are so simplified, and in a way, um, you can. There's no. There's of course where you come from has got some in, some influence on the genes you have. But as a way of defining races, if one ever wanted to do that, which I don't think is a good idea, it's it's hopelessly confusing. Yeah, it, it, I, I think some people have described it as being a social construct. Uh, oh, yeah, it's not, nice. So it's not so much a, a real thing. I mean, you could, I imagine, tell from someone's genome what mm. part of the world maybe they come from. But especially in countries like uh, America, where there's such a, a, a mix of, of different peoples from all over the world, I imagine there's, there's just no real meaning to it. Well, um, the first thing is a fallacy to say, where do I come from? Because 
for each generation in the past, you've got double the number of ancestors. So you don't come from any one place. All your ancestors come from all over the place. Um, but the technique that I was using for DNA USA enabled me to say, well, this bit of your DNA has come from Africa, this bit's come from Europe, this bit is Native American so on. And in fact, I've got some African DNA myself, part of my insulin genes, for example. Uh, here in the South, I live in the South, so of the United States, and, and, and well, it's always been a big social issue, especially yeah. uh, in, in my area, but... Uh, lately, it's just uh, really become quite explosive, and and it just breaks my heart that we don't see each other as just people. Well, of course we should, and that's, I mean, if, if there's any message from the DNA, it's that we are all part of one big family. With slight differences, of course. We're a very, very recent species compared to anything else in our surroundings, and of course, we've got we've got bits and pieces from everywhere to try and divide us in, uh, genetically or really in any other way is completely wrong, in my opinion. But it doesn't seem to go away, does it? No, because I think visually, uh, the whole idea of race works as a was a handy heuristic for dividing people. But uh, just because our brains want us to do that doesn't mean it's a good yeah. idea. So our brains do a lot of things that aren't good ideas. So. <laughs> Yes, and that which brings us on to Bigfoot. Which is, it does, it does. So, so what led you to try applying your DNA analysis skills to Bigfoot and Yeti research? Yes, good question. Um, well, I've, as, as we'll have gathered already, I've always been interested in human evolution. And one of the puzzles about human evolution is why is there only one species of human alive at the moment? Um, and what happened to the Neanderthals, which were a different species of human? And I've always been curious about that. Um, and then when I started to look into this, I th wondered whether, in fact, some of these different types of human had not actually become extinct and still were hanging on in remote parts of the world. And that, of course, uh, tallies with the reports of Bigfoot and Yetis and so on. So I expanded the uh, my research project to include, in fact, it really took it over to try and, inc and to include those creatures. And what I found was that, uh, uh, that I was interested in really in examining the hard evidence for the existence of uh, Yetis, Bigfoot, Almastis, and so on and so forth. Um, and I could see that it was practical to do it in a properly scientific manner, such that uh, it would pass the test of, having, of being published in a scientific uh, peer-reviewed publication, which was my aim as well. So I thought it'd be fun. I would, like everyone else, curious to know if these creatures or what they were, if they existed at all, if there were little pockets of Neanderthals in the Himalayas or in the Pacific Northwest. So general interest like everybody has, but, but having an opportunity as a geneticist and I had to develop a very rigorous way of testing this, these organic remains um, that would reveal the underlying species. So for, from a, a scientific point of view, it was relatively straightforward. Get hold of the uh, hair samples. Um, that took some doing, but had great help from the Bigfoot community from, uh, and other cryptozoologists all over the world looked around as many museums as I could and got hold of as much material as I could and then analysed it in the way which would reveal uh, through DNA what the species 
who owned the hair really was. So although lots of my colleagues thought it was a crazy thing to do, I never thought it was a, 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 a project which was in any way outside the scope of science. Um, and, and so it's proved because it was published in a, in a proper peer-reviewed science publication, the Proceedings of Royal Society back a year or so ago. Um, so, so that was very, um, it was very uh, great fun, but also a good project. I mean, it was, it was. Uh, I was pleased with with how it went. Very pleased. So you've you've hit on a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about. One there is uh, you made a call for samples. What kind of responses did you get to that? Like, what 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 did people send in? Well, lots and lots of material um, were sent in from that call, but also. Uh, I got to know people in the Bigfoot world because of that, and so, some of the people, particularly uh, a Bigfootologist from um, Washington State, Redmond Mullis, was very helpful, put me in contact with many others. I had help from Jeff Meldrum also in Idaho. Uh, he, he helped me out to contact people getting samples. So it was a very positive response. Of course, it depended on getting these samples. I couldn't have done the project if nobody would send me anything. And I think that reflects an open-mindedness amongst bigfootologists and cryptozoologists that they really want to know what these creatures are. I mean, I don't think any of them seriously doubt that they exist, so that wasn't of great interest because they believe they do exist. They wanted to know what they are. So I imagine that put you in an, an interesting position because I, I felt, uh, based on my work in this field, which has mostly mm. been limited to interviews, talked to a lot of different people and read a lot, uh, mm. that to some, the, the evidence that they have is almost sacred and they wouldn't necessarily want to see that examined and know. But I, I'm glad that that was the response that you got. Yeah, it was generally. I mean, uh, there were... A few people who who didn't seem very interested in allowing me to examine them until they were in the minority. But of course, there might have been other people who just didn't want me to just didn't reply or respond at all. But but I don't think so because uh, I got to know lots and lots of Bigfoot uh, experts, and there weren't many. There were not many people, reputable people, reputable cryptozoologists who I wasn't able to contact and who, if they could, helped out. Did you get a sample from uh, Dr. Henner Fehrenbach? Yes, I did. Okay. I had approached him a few years ago asking him if he'd be willing to put some of his samples through DNA analysis, but he had had told me that he thought that the uh, process he had used to fix them as slides had probably destroyed the DNA. Were you able to get DNA from his samples? Yes. Um, in fact, um, I've, I was able to... I can't quite remember whether I had to get that out from behind the slide. I know I did on more than one occasion have to get the hair out from underneath the cover slip on a, mounted on a slide, which I was able to do by dissolving off the cement with xylene. And, um, and fortunately, that didn't destroy the DNA in Great. the head. So, yeah, I did manage to do that. Um, and I got something from Henna Farenbach, one of his samples, yeah. One of the big problems that uh, we might discuss is that people can do DNA analysis on a sample, but if they don't do it properly, they'll get it wrong. And one of the 
the reasons I used hair, for example, is that with a, a former colleague um, uh, who has gone on to, Terry Melton, who's gone on to use uh, hair analysis in mitochondrial DNA for, for forensic use, and we use her forensic methods, which completely clean off any contamination on the surface of the hair. So unless you do that, and it's not a simple uh, thing to do either, then you're going to get some, uh, often some other DNA, not the DNA of the original animal that produced the hair. And I think that has bedeviled um, a lot of this work. It's just been not been done enough to a high, not been done to a high enough standard, which is unfortunate. But uh, there it is. Um, it is difficult work to do properly. Well, that's, that actually brings me to a, a sort of similar example that you cover in the book, which is, and I hope I don't mispronounce this, the, the, the Pangbo Shieti finger? Yes. Okay. That's... So in 2011, a BBC radio documentary said that the DNA sample uh, from that mummified finger was human. Yes. And in your book, and I don't want to spoil any surprises, you propose a, a specific name for the source of that DNA. Right, true. So, I mean, it's such a tremendous story, the Behind uh, the Pangloch finger. Uh, it really is. I love that story because it involves... Amazing. It's got everything you could possibly want in an adventure story. It really does. Hollywood stars, <laughs> smuggling, theft, undercover work. Fantastic. But yes, yeah, so that that um, that was analysed for a, a documentary, um, for a BBC documentary, and the analysis was done in Edinburgh by a Dr. Rob Ogden, and I went to see him, and he was kind enough to give me this, the DNA sequences that he'd got from the finger. And indeed, um, it was clear from that that this was not a Nepalese. It was human, sure, sure enough, but it wasn't a Himalayan uh, finger. You know, we were talking about before, can you tell where someone's from? Well, with mitochondrial DNA, which is what I analyzed, you can have a pretty good stab in that in general terms. Um, this was not... Indigenous to the region, so then I ma I managed to get hold of DNA from uh, one of the people involved. I say I won't spoil the story uh, right. in the in the in the in the, the drama of the Pangbush finger, and uh, and got a DNA match with with this this man. Um, it's not de definite proof that it's his DNA, but. Um, because uh, it's quite unusual DNA. It might have been somebody else's, but uh, it's uh, an amusing conclusion, or not a conclusion, an addition, an additional twist in this fantastic story. So that person, I do not believe, is missing a mummified finger from his hand. So that would imply that the... Uh, well, the... I can confirm that. <laughs> so, so where is the, the, the mummified finger now? Well, that's back in the Royal College of Surgeons in London. It was um, collected for uh, a, an, interest, an interesting man, an anatomist called William Osman Hill, and he sent out um, an adventurer uh, to get it, get the finger, uh, and gave him the adventure that is a, a human finger to substitute for the one in the monastery. Pangboshi is a monastery in Nepal. Um, 
and so so he, he actually he was active at a time in the 50s and 60s when there were many serious scientists and he was a serious scientist he was in charge of the primates at uh, primate collection at the London Zoological Society so he's a regular scientist uh, if a bit of a scoundrel mind <laughs> stealing this arranging to have this holy relic stolen but Passing over that for a second, um, this was a time when quite a lot of serious scientists did uh, did work on on yetis and Bigfoot and things like that. Something that really hasn't happened for many decades now. So maybe there's a little flurry of activity now, which is all to the good. So if you uh, if if the DNA was from a contaminant rather than from the actual finger material, mm-hmm. do you think the finger deserves further study? Well, um, I did ask the museum if I could take another sample, but they rather sensibly, I think, declined. Um, And it's not easy, actually. It's fingers and toes. I've tried to get... I've worked on these things for a long time. Toes and fingers are not very good for DNA because they're, they're quite hollow structures. It's not a good piece of... Femur, you can drill out, you know, or even skull. So that I'd, I wouldn't be too keen to do it again. And there, you see, unlike hair, you've got always got this problem of contamination um, because you can't clean the surface. And by the look of it, since I've matched it to other people that was known to handle the pangbosch finger, that's uh, that's proof of the pudding. You also cover in your book another of uh, one of the very well-known uh, Bigfoot stories, which is the story of Zena, the uh, alleged uh, wild woman of Russia, which yeah. is, the story's always intrigued me. Yes. But I think, uh, and again, I don't want to spoil the story, but you do come to some really interesting conclusions. And I, is it okay to talk about the outcome of that? Well, yeah, sure. Okay, so, so the yeah. legend says that this this woman was captured by uh, Russians in the late 1800s and that she was held prisoner for 20 years and that during that time, village men fathered children with her. So she was a real person and her yeah. descendants are still around. You're able to study the, their DNA and make some interesting conclusions. Mm. Let's talk about that. Okay. So as Zana, as, her, as she was called, um, she was an extraordinary physical specimen according to the reports. And a couple of Russian scientists, Boris Porchnev and Igor Burtsev, interviewed people in the 1970s that had actually seen her in the late 19th century as children, when they were children. And she was very tall, six foot six, and extremely muscular, very fit, very athletic, very, very strong. Um, she never came inside. She slept outside all the time, even in the middle of winter. Uh, she dug a hole in the ground and slept in that. She never wore clothes. She, and interestingly, in my view, she never uttered a word. Um, so, Eagle Burtsev exhumed the skeleton and has the skull of her, one of her sons, her youngest son, a man called Kvit. And I was able to get a tooth from that, kindly um, provided by Igor Bertsev and Dmitry Pirkolov, who look after these samples in Moscow. 
And teeth, unlike bone, or finger bone anyway, is uh, relatively easy to decontaminate because you can scrub the enamel up really well. And I've used teeth lots of times to get ancient DNA. Um, and to my surprise, uh, I was testing the theory that Porchneff had produced that really Zana, because of her description, was a surviving Neanderthal, which was very exciting. So I did manage to get mitochondrial DNA from Zana's tooth. I'm not Zana's tooth, I'm sorry, from Zana's son's tooth, Kavit. But because mitochondrial DNA is inherited uh, exclusively from the mother, Kavit's mitochondrial DNA is exactly the same as Zana herself. And it turned out that she didn't have DNA anything like um, Caucasians, modern Abkhazians. She's from Abkhazia, so part of Russia and part of Georgia now, formally, but in a, a bad way. But anyhow, um, so she didn't have indigenous DNA at all. And then comparing it to other humans from all over the world, Clearly, it was most closely genetically related, though not exactly identical, to African, sub-Saharan African DNA, which was amazing, really. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. Uh, what it did do, uh, disappointingly for uh, the Russians, really, was to show that actually Zana could not have been a Neanderthal. A Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA sequence is known very well, and it wasn't anything like that. So then um, the question was, what was the rest of her DNA like? Well, fortunately, Dmitry Pirkolov in particular had traced the, the descendants of Zana through her two sons had further children and I got DNA from six of them I then put them through the same process we were talking about before with DNA USA where I could identify fragments of chromosomes from Africa Asia and Europe and the amazing thing was that I could identify African segments of DNA in her descendants. 
and not in anyone else I tested from the area. And that DNA, um, there are ways of, uh, there are reasons to believe that it was all Zana's and not another ancestor's, and they all had approximately the right proportion of African DNA, um, which fitted in with a degree of descent from Zana. So it's diluted at every generation. We were mainly looking at great-grandchildren. And uh, from this analysis, Zana would have been 100% sub-Saharan Africa. So there are two uh, uh, possible explanations for this. One is rather prosaic, but still extraordinary, given, given the description of Zana, which was that she was an escaped slave. Now, there were slaves in Abkhazia, African slaves, but not many of them. Um, and she would have had to survive in the Caucasus Mountains, which is hard to believe she could as a very healthy, fit person who is escaping living in the forest on their own. Generally speaking, people that end up in the forest um, are malnourished and on the verge of starvation, which she certainly wasn't. The other possibility, um, which is one I'm investigating at the moment, is that she's African, um, but she's not from the main exodus that our species made from Africa 100,000 years ago or so, but from a different exodus, and perhaps one that was even earlier than our other Homo sapiens, um, which is the species we mostly we all belong to, um, and that it was an earlier wave of migration out of Africa. So what I'm doing now is isolating, again, in a computational way, getting back to my conversations with computational statisticians, to isolate and analyze those African segments in, in Zana's descendants. And it's actually quite complicated and difficult to do um, for technical reasons that we don't know, need to go into. But getting back to what I was saying about statistical genesis, they're quite reluctant to do this. They don't see the excitement. So um, I will get it done eventually, but most of my friends think, oh, well, I know. Um, they aren't excited about it, which is a bit of a shame. And I think it's probably, say, spend too much time in front of a, in front of a <laughs> screen. So if any of your listeners would like to help me with that, I'd be glad of their assistance because it's beyond my capabilities for sure. Well, I'm sure they, we have a lot of uh, very science-oriented listeners who might be. So uh, uh, mm. how would you want them to contact you? Oh, uh, email, brian, B-R-Y-A-N, dot Sykes at Wolfson. That's the college in Oxford. Um, W-O-L-F-S-O-N dot O-X dot A-C dot U-K. Okay, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well, then, if that's okay. That would be very good. Well, so how would you go about, um, if if you're doing this from a statistical perspective, how do you identify... <laughs> I'm trying to imagine how this works. Uh, I, I, yeah. I'm honestly at a loss. I don't understand how would you be able to identify specifically if she was from a different, uh, mm-hmm. gen- like Exodus uh, activity. Yeah. Well, the, it from, it, from it, genetics. I mean, I would imagine there would have to yeah. be an extant population of those people and archaeological remains, and uh, that sort of thing would verify. But right. but you're, you're looking for just no. These are modern people, so yeah. 
the 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 DNA is of African origin, mm-hmm. um, and what? But the, they're not. It's not all DNA. There are bits, chunks spread around the genome. So I'm going to have to computationally isolate those chunks of African DNA, and then this is the hard part to separate them because chromosomes come in pairs from the other chromosome in the individual. That's the really tricky part because we don't. We'll have European or Asian or Abkhazian chromosomes mixed in, and then analyze them separately so that we can look at the just the African component. And then, I, what I p- propose to do is to compare that with all the other living Africans, modern Africans that we can, uh, uh, whose data we can get our hands on. There's plenty of that, and just see whether. Zana's descendants, when you look at the cluster cluster analysis of this, whether she lies, uh, well, she, her reconstructed genome, uh, isolated and analyzed from her descendants, you'll be able to reconstruct quite a lot of her genome, um, it lies within the spectrum of modern Africans or some way out of it. That sounds really interesting. I, I hope uh, you get some help from my listeners. That'd be yeah, great. I think it's really interesting, but you tell that to <laughs> tell that to the commutational. Um, <laughs> well, I haven't been interested at all. I can't believe it myself, but there we are. Well, this uh, all of this research puts you in a strange position. Or I would say an unenviable position, in that you're you're talking about a, a fringe topic, but you're trying to take scientific approaches to it. So. You've got, uh, I'm sure some people in the scientific community would just prefer not to look at this. I know a lot of the people we've talked to on the show have, have said that they would. But then you also have people in cryptozoology who, like, I think may have a vested interest in having a mystery. Yeah. Did you get a lot of criticism? No, not really. Oh, good. Okay. My colleagues here in Oxford, they, they tell a bit of a joke about it. But if they thought seriously about it, and a lot, until I talked to a lot of very experienced colleagues more senior than myself, really, and more experienced. And they said, well, that's just a perfectly sound uh, project, really. The fact that it's on something which is a little out of the ordinary doesn't mean to say it's beyond the scope of science, and that was very important. And the second thing was I didn't by any means set out to prove that all cryptozoologists are deluded fools <laughs> and, and uh, I mean what, that, what a waste of time that would be so I thought there was a small but nonetheless not zero chance of finding um, a, a, a what's called a collateral hominid or a, a, or a, an anomalous primate or the, in other words, some, an ape or another or type. Mystery of apes. Yeah, there's so many names for them. That's so true. So, I know we're running short on time, but uh, I do want to talk about um, the, the other big uh, topic that was in the news related to this, which was the uh, hybridized bear DNA. I know that uh, you've had some, uh, let's see, you've had a little bit of peer rebuttal from that, and there's been uh, questions about maybe, I, I think I read there might be another documentary about it. Uh, is that? Can you talk? Let's talk about that research and, and what you found. And okay, so a couple of samples from the Himalayas, uh, when they were genetically matched up t- uh, to the collection of mammalian DNA, so extensive one, had their closest genetic relatives uh, with the polar bear. Well, polar bears and 
brown bears are known to hybridize. They're not, not known to be polar bears in the, in the Himalayas. And um, so we just reported this, gave uh, no real explanations of it, because we, all we'd done was analyze a rather short piece of DNA. And in the normal process of scientific publication and, uh, and criticism, people thought, oh, well, maybe there are other explanations for it. Um, and people, a couple of people wrote papers, I'm afraid to say, I think it's the same people that sit behind the computer screens and gave far too extravagant explanations of what might be or might not be happening. Um, that's to say that it's probably a hybrid bear. Well, maybe it is. But I think the answer is to go and find a living one. Well, we found two on either end of the Himalayas, and uh, so... There is an expedition going out to try and capture and get a, a better sample from one of these. I think it's pointless to try and get more from the tiny segment of DNA that we analysed in the project. and It just needs more data, and then we might find a lot more out about Himalayan bears in particular and, uh, and the relationship, which is a, a real one, between our bears and the, um, and the polar bear. Which I think will be it will be interesting. So, um, I, I mean, people will um, and they're quite entitled to put their point of view, but I, it doesn't take away from the fact that a that it wasn't a hominid, and b that it was a polar bear probably. But again, there needs to be more work, and that's the best way to do it. Is this expedition coming up, or is it already underway, or or what's it's coming up? This summer's I'm not involved in it personally, um, not being having anything much to say about bears or bear DNA. So I believe uh, last term I talked to the producers, they were uh, getting ready to go. And um, one of the, yeah, well, we hope, hope it comes off. Excellent. So a lot of my listeners are young and um, might be interested in becoming geneticists, what kind of things should they be studying if they want to prepare for that type of work? Well, there's plenty to read now. Um, and clearly, it's, um, it's a good idea to have some biology training. Um, uh, most geneticists would say you need maths as well, but as you, from what I've said already today, I think <laughs> maybe you'd be better off if you didn't couldn't do any sums at all. Uh, anyhow, yeah, so I think biology, a sense of adventure. Um, there's lots to be done. Um, funnily enough, I got interested in genetics as a result of being... I loved natural history as a boy, so I was always out. I mean, you can't don't do it these days. I used to love butterflies, and there's been a lot of genetics work done on butterflies. That's how I got involved in it. Oh, no, they're fascinating. I mean... Yeah. The whole, the whole, the insects in general, because of mm. the metamorphosis they go through in their yeah. their life cycle, is just amazing. Kinds of things. Yeah. In fact, a lot of what we know about genetics has worked out from but with butterflies between the wars. So enjoy natural history and go to your museums, look at these bones and things, uh, and just enjoy the the natural world in that way. Do a bit of biology. Do a genetics degree by all means, um, but there's it, it's going to be endlessly fascinating as we know more and more. I mean, it's ch it's changed so much. 
I remember when uh, my colleagues and I first attempted to get DNA from human fossils back in 1989, we thought it would be absolutely impossible to, that DNA could survive for hundreds or let alone thousands of years. But we gave it a go. So don't be afraid to give things a go. I mean, there's much more chance of finding a Yeti than getting DNA out of some old bone that had been lying on the ground for hundreds of years. But there, enough that, that, that there you are, it worked. It's almost routine now, so... And I haven't given up on the yeses either. I mean, <laughs> you might think that I've disproved them. Well, of course I haven't. All I've proven is that the material I collected or was given, uh, none of that was uh, was an anomalous primate, with the exception possibly of Zana. And uh, well, people have reacted. I mean, some people, you're quite right, they, they won't... Uh, they won't accept any other views um, than their own. Of course, that's the antithesis of science, really. Um, and some cryptozoologists have written in the past that they felt rejected by science. Well, I don't think they can say that anymore, really. Just, I mean, science is, is doesn't reject or accept anything. It all does is looks at the evidence. Just another branch of philosophy, really. I concur with that, absolutely. Oh. The uh, I think... Uh, Todd Dissotel uh, and yourself have both tried to make that point very well, and mm. I appreciate that. What? Uh, I guess we're running out of time, so let's do the last question. What is your favorite monster? Well, I've been thinking about this since you told me you were going to ask it, and I have to say it, I'm coming down in favor of the Mongolian death worm. Oh, that's a classic. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely ludicrous. <laughs> it is ludicrous, but yet so wonderful. It's, it, and of course, I, I know the scale of it is not as grand as I think a lot of popular culture renditions of it have it looking like a, a, the sandworms from Frank Herbert's Dune books. But uh, yes, yes. A, but still, it's uh, any any creatures that uh, are horrible, worm-like, and can kill you with a glance. Uh, That's it. <laughs> I saw a documentary on that, and it looked like a drainage pipe to me. Yeah. <laughs> So that's got to be my favorite. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Sykes, I really appreciate you talking to us today. Your book, uh, The Nature of the Beast, is available now. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I think it's being published in next spring in the U.S., but it is available now. Monster Talk. Thanks to everyone who contributed their own favorite monsters to this episode. We got over 75 contributions, and I loved editing them together although it did take me about six hours to get it all put together between having to change the various file formats and bit rates and blah, blah, blah. But it was fun. I had a good time. I did have trouble deciding how to group the contributions, finally deciding to use a sort of general grouping that struck my fancy. So without further ado, here we go. First up is Bigfoot. You know, without the big guy, there probably wouldn't be a monster talk because I was inspired by all the various TV shows about mystery animals. And Bigfoot dominates that market. In fact, as I was putting this together, the final episode of Finding Bigfoot Season 7 aired on Animal Planet. I don't want to spoil anything, but they still haven't found Bigfoot. That is kind of amazing considering that Animal Planet has claimed to have found mermaids and giant prehistoric sharks. Well... Dog whisperers and imaginary sea beasts aside, Bigfoot is still very popular, and he'll always have a special place in my heart, even if he never has a place in a natural history museum. My name is Richard, and my favorite monster is Sasquatch. My name is Kelly Weasley, and my favorite monster is the abominable snowman. Hello? 
My name is Brian Gabicko, and my favorite monster is still Bigfoot. Hi, my name's Tom Hanks, and my favorite monster is Bigfoot. My name is Tammy Buckley, and my favorite monster is the Abominable Snowman. Aliens, especially the ones from the Alien franchise, make our list. My name is Mesa, and my favorite monster this week is the alien xenomorph. My name is Adam Never, and my favorite monster is the xenomorph. I admire its purity, a survivor, unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. And we have the Roswell alien. Hello, my name is Todd Foster. This is an episode 100 suggestion. It is for the Roswell aliens. You know, those were the guys that showed up several times, left bodies scattered around, were hidden in the secret cave somewhere by the government. A giant conspiracy in Roswell. Those are my monsters. What they do is ignore the real hero of Roswell, which was Dr. Robert Goddard, the rocket pioneer, who years ago, maybe it's still there, had a little museum in Roswell, a little storefront museum run by a very cranky person. I don't know if it's still there, but what I do know is in Roswell are a number, how many remains to be seen, of the little storefront equivalents of UFO and alien artifact museums. So I'd like to see you do a show on this subject. Thanks a lot. Bye. On a personal note, it was a paranormal-themed road trip, which included a stop at Roswell, New Mexico, that had a very big impact on my switch to skepticism as my sort of default position on the mysterious. Ghosts didn't make the list, with the exception of this creepy critter from a very recent motion picture, a movie that I liked very much, but which seemed to have split horror audiences quite divisively. My name is Shannon, and my favorite monster is the Babadook. And technology makes an appearance. My name is Rick Duffy, and my favorite monster is a homicidal computer. Here are some monsters that come from the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game. My name is Walker, and my favorite monster is the gelatinous cube. Hello, my name's Joe McKenzie, and my favorite monster is the Beholder from Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. My name is Hallie M. Smith, and my favorite monster is a bar guest. My name is Walter, and my favorite monster is the Beholder. I would throw in a TARDIS sound effect here, but honestly, I'm running out of time to get this episode cut together, so here are some Doctor Who monsters. Hello, my name is Roberto Moratore, and my favorite monsters are the Weeping Angels from Doctor Who. My name is Ralph Taylor, and my favorite monster is the Master from Doctor Who. And now, a list of monsters mostly derived from folklore, which, for reasons I can't easily defend, I'm separating from monsters derived from myth. My name is Kyle Bolich from the Data Skeptic Podcast, and my favorite monsters are gremlins. Because if, against all odds, they turn out to be real, it will be great to have a scapegoat for all my technology problems. Hi, my name is Jeff Lasala. And my favorite monster is the gargoyle. My name is Dr. Neil Ashelman, and my favorite monster is the real Ghostbusters version of the Boogeyman. My name is David McSween, and my favorite monster is the Bunyip. My name is Joseph Gagné, and my favorite monster is La Bête du Gévaudan, also known as the Beast of Gévaudan. My name is Evelina, and my favorite monster is a witch. My name is Adam, and my favorite monster is the Oswang. Because it's fun to say. My name is Simon Woolley, 
and my favorite monster is the Nandi Bear. My name is Dean Maservi, and my favorite monster is the Poes Mort of the Finnic Udmort people from the forests of central Russia. The Poes Mort, or half-man, is 18 feet tall with one arm, one eye, one leg, razor-sharp teeth and acid saliva, and he's the reason people go into the woods and never come out. He is cannibalistic and evil, but can be outsmarted if you are clever with words. So my favorite monster is the Poes Mort. Oh, and of course the succubus. She can visit me any time. My name is Mike, and my favorite monster is the Lich. My name is Jesse Greer, and my favorite monster is the Chupacabra. My name is Sherry, and my favorite monster is the Wetigo or Windigo. My name is Marianne, and my favorite monster is the Boromats, also known as the Vegetable Lamb. And here are some monsters that are humanoid in shape. My name is Amy Rainwater, and my favorite monster is Gilman! The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I'm Max Ray, and my favorite monster is Mothman. My name is Stephen Doyle. My favorite monster is Frankenstein's Creature. My name is Al Clark, and my favorite monster is Spring-Heeled Jack. And now, it's time for some kaiju, giant movie monsters. My name is Christine McCall, and my favorite monster is, hands down, Godzilla. I'm Scott Barber. My favorite monster is Godzilla, the king of monsters. Hi, my name's Brad Nichols, and my favorite monster is no mere monster. He is Daikaiju, king of the monsters. He's the great pacifistic nuclear war metaphor. Ojira. I'm Andrew Hansford, and my favorite monster is... Lake and sea monsters are quite popular. Hi, my name is Antonio, and my favorite monsters are giant squids and other sea monsters. Thank you. My name is George O'Connor, and my favorite monster is the New England Sea Serpent. My name is Hunter, and my favorite monster is Ogopogo. My name is Ben Schneider, and my favorite monster is the 1855 Silver Lake Sea Serpent, because technically it was real. Hi, my name is Ryan Eldridge, and my favorite monster is the Altamaha River Monster from Darien, Georgia. Hi, my name is Ruud van der Wille from the Netherlands, and my favorite monster is, besides our daughter Bettina, the monster of Loch Ness. My name is Rasmus, and my favorite monster is the giant squid. My name is Adinokov, and my favorite monster is the giant squid. Uh, my name is Raven J, and my favorite monster is the Loch Ness Monster. Um, I have a quick story about the Loch Ness Monster. So, I have a favorite artist uh, named Arthur Adams. He's a comic artist from, like, mostly the... 80s and the 90s. I mean, he's still around, but there's this collection of his artwork and I was at my local comic shop and I was looking through it and he has these characters named Monkey Man O'Brien and I noticed the characters right away. It was a pretty big picture in the book and I noticed like a baby plesiosaur down at the bottom and for some reason my eyes didn't focus on the whole picture right away but then I started my eyes started slowly looking up and processing the whole thing. And lo and behold, there was like three plesiosaurs with one prominent with this neck, like point. I don't know, it was really scary. So as soon as I noticed what it was, I closed the book and I got goosebumps and I like stopped and looked around me in the, in the comic shop, which must have looked ridiculous. 
But that's the thing about the Loch Ness Monster. I kind of get scared looking at pictures of it sometimes. Or even if I'm in the shower, sometimes I have to like open my eyes really quick, which then soap burns my eyes. So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know why, but I do. And um, I was really disappointed that Jurassic World did not have a plesiosaur. So, anyways, um, thanks for doing the show. It's awesome. I try to listen to every episode. There's some I don't. But for the most part, it's one of my favorite podcasts. So, thank you. And here are some monsters from the comics. My name is Doug Leonard, and my favorite monster is Hellboy, Anung Un Rama. My name is the Mad Humanist Podcast, and my favorite monster is the monster in the darkness from the Order of the Stick webcomic. And speaking of comics... We had one entry that didn't include an audio file from Richard. His favorite monster was The Thing. His was The Thing from The Fantastic Four. I think he made an elegant argument that The Thing is a fantastic monster. I'm also fond of The Thing, the Ben Grimm character, as well as The Thing from the John Carpenter film of the same name. And here are some monsters from H.P. Lovecraft. My name is John, and my favorite monster is Brown Jenkin. Hi. My name is Robert Mortzen, and my favorite monster is H.P. Lovecraft's Shoggoth, and I'm going to make my D&D party fight one tonight. Hi, my name is Chris Cranick, and my favorite monster is Cthulhu. And here are some monsters from mythology. Hi, this is Dave from Minneapolis, and my favorite monster is the Hydra. My name is Eric, and my favorite monster is the dragon. This is Evil Eye, and my favorite monster is Araburos. The wingless dragon that swallows his own tail. <laughs> Hello, my name is Dennis Solaro, and my favorite monster is the anthropomorphic personification of death. And why does that character become a female character named La Faucheuse in French? Well, that's because we're French and we do things differently. Voila! <laughs> My name is Johnny, and my favorite monster is the Shidi May. As we've mentioned before on Monster Talk, perhaps the most dangerous monster is man. So here are some serial killers. My name is Matthew Pollock, and my favorite monster is Tom Ripley. My name is Christina Barber, and my favorite monster is Hannibal Lecter. My name is Ryan Fletcher, and my favorite monster is maybe a bit unconventional, but the serial killer particularly those ones who wear um, these kind of grotesque disguises uh, like Charles Schmidt or Ed Gein. We had quite a few contributors who enjoyed werewolves. Greetings, my name is Sterling, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. My name is John Moore, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. This is Working Class Skeptic, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. Hi, my name is Karen Johnson, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. My name is Haley Price, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. My name is Jim Dr. Dim Fitzsimmons, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. My name is Paul Campana, and my favorite monster is the werewolf. And vampires show up on the list. My name is Meg, and my favorite monsters are vampires. Of course, you can't have a monster list without zombies lurking around. Hi, my name's Jonathan, and my favorite monster is the Romero zombie, if not all zombies. Congratulations, guys. My name is John from North Carolina, and my favorite monsters are the undead in general, zombies in particular. 
And here's an adorable entry from a mother and her children. My name is Tilda, and my favorite monster is a lake creature, especially Nahuelito and Sturge Ujure. My name is Luca, and my favorite monster is a zombie. I'm Tommy, and my favorite monster is a spider in Minecraft. Hola! <laughs> this is Anton. Hola! And his favorite monster is a... And of course, I'm not immune to pandering. My name is Chris Henderson, and my favorite monster is whichever one is featured on the next episode of Monster Talk. If you didn't hear your contribution, I apologize. I did my best to compile every entry sent, although I know some folks did not follow the requested format, and consequently your entry may have gotten lost in the ridiculously frothy digital waterfall that is my email inbox. Maybe we'll do this again in the future. Monster Talk. Monster Talk. Thanks for listening to another episode of Monster Talk. I'm Blake Smith, and you've been listening to an interview with Dr. Brian Sykes about his book, The Nature of the Beast, which will be coming out in America in the spring, but which is already out in the UK and can be ordered from Amazon.com. A link to that will be in our show notes. Thanks again to Karen Stolzno for making a brief visit there in the beginning. Um, Wow, it's been 100 episodes. That's amazing. Uh, Thanks for everyone who contributed. I really appreciate it. Normally I have a script for this outro, and I don't have one today. I'm just trying to do this off the top of my head. There's this fantastic thunderstorm outside. It's really exactly the kind of feel I like to have for the show, only normally I don't like that noise in the background. Um, Monster Talk is a podcast of Skeptic Magazine, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The opinions expressed in the show are mine and those of my guests and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Skeptic Society or Skeptic Magazine. Although, you know, a lot of times we have the same opinions. (laughs) I'm going to miss you guys for a while. I'll be back. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. to stay abreast of the latest from Skeptic Magazine and the Skeptic Society? Want cutting-edge skeptical articles delivered straight to your inbox every week? Then subscribe to eSkeptic, the free electronic newsletter of the Skeptic Society. Visit skeptic.com to sign up. Hello, my name's Maynard, and my favorite monster is erectile dysfunction and its friends. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.